up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3, we're in this series, we started it last week on the life of Moses, and we focused last week on this kind of singular prayer. I don't know if you've been whispering at all through this past week, if not, perhaps in the week ahead. The prayer goes like this, Lord, light a fire in my heart that doesn't need me for fuel. Because the real miracle we talked about last week was that Moses was 80 years old, standing and staring at a plant whose proper name is called the Rubus Sanctus. That's the burning bush. The name of that plant is the Rubus Sanctus. He's staring into a Rubus Sanctus, and the miracle is that that plant wasn't consumed by the fire. The true miracle is the fire didn't need that plant for fuel. And we looked at how Moses began the most spiritually productive season of his life at age 80. Hallelujah for that, right? We talked about how the recent studies are done that the most spiritually fruitful decades of our lives, number one is your 60s, number two is your 70s, number three is your 50s. So I'm 48. I'm staring at three, one, and two. So you can hold me accountable. Say, hey, Simpson, no foot off the gas pedal. You're heading into the third, first, and second most productive 30-year run of your life by God's grace. And that means our 20s, 30s, and 40s have a kind of a stewardship, a preparation for what will become the most spiritually productive seasons of our life. So I think there's tremendous application here when we think about our inner generational discipleship as a church. And I'm excited about where we're going to be going. And you're going to be hearing more about this in the months ahead. But it's really critical we think about the role of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. About putting our roots down with depth in your early stages of your life. You spend your 20s, 30s, and 40s building depth, and then you let God take care of the breadth of you spread out in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. You have more to offer in those seasons of life than ever. My observation in being around local church ministry for 25 years is there's a willingness and an openness from those in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to pour out their life and invest in those who are younger. And I want to challenge those of you in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Wow, here we go. We've got the nice little lighting effects going on today. So just pause here, let you know. We don't intentionally do this each week. It's not our tech guy's problems. We've got some... 20-year-old issues of technology with our lighting packs and dimmer packs, and we're working hard at getting all these replaced. As you might imagine, when you look at the size of this room, to replace all of our house lights, it's a little more than $100. Are you following me? But we recognize it's important. We want you to be able to see. We're sorry for the distraction of this, so Mr. Brian on our lighting board will do everything he can to minimize our distractions today. But just know it's not their fault. It has to do more with the physical structure of stuff, and we're going to get this thing solved. All right, so back. Where was I at before the lights are all, all going off here? But the idea is the 20s, 30s, and 40s have to have this kind of pursuit, a, a willingness to say, you know what? I want to, I'll make time, I'll, I'll, I'll carve out time and energy to pursue someone who's farther down the road, who's gone through some stuff in life, and ask them to help and invest in me. I think that's really important. Now, there needs to be a willingness for those who are a little farther down the road 
to invest in. My observation is I think there's plenty of willingness from those who are in the latter stages, but the struggle has been everybody in their 20s, 30s, and 40s is running so hard, so fast, doing so much of life with kids and families and careers that we just look out and go, there's just no margin for it. And I want to I want to kind of lobby here. I want to just insert some words and say, hey, think about, let's run the tape out. What's going to matter most? Like 100 years from now, what are the things we're going to be really grateful we invested in? I'm not sure we're going to be super thankful we added like a fourth travel soccer league to the situation. But we, I think we're going to be really grateful that we carved out a few hours and sat before the word and before a godly person and with the Holy Spirit's help and said, hey, you know what? Teach me how to live life in the kingdom of God together. That's true discipleship. And I'm so grateful as a body, if you kind of glance around the congregation, what we have here is we've got a tremendous breadth spanning the age groups. That hasn't always been the case at Eagle. Back in the early stages of Eagle, 25 years ago, when we were doing West 71st Street Ministry, some of you were around then, we didn't have the breadth of age span then. We were mostly in our 20s and 30s just trying to figure out how to get things going. But by God's grace, 25 years later, look at what God's done. I think there's been a multiplication and an addition of intergenerational ministry. I think it's a good sign of church health. And I want to see us leverage it. And Moses' life is like a poster child for someone who's flourishing in the latter decades of his life. You got two chapters of Moses' first 80 years. Exodus 1 and 2, Moses from 0 to 80. Exodus 3 to Deuteronomy 34, 135 chapters of Moses from 80 to 120. So lest you think, hey, it's time. So none of you who are planning retirement, coasting off to the Gulf of Mexico and catching a bunch of seashells, that's not God's vision for retirement. It's time to put the foot on the gas and you have more to offer. Even when in your career world there may be a, a tapering down career-wise, there's a tapering up for kingdom investment. Because you you're at your peak at 65. I hope you're encouraged by that. I was talking to some young folks last week. I said, hey, you know what, just relax. He was like, he's like 32, 33. I got, you got a good 30-year run before you hit your peak. Relax, pace yourself, focus on depth, get in the word, build community, learn how to pray, build into your marriage, build into your kids, put your roots down deep. Steward your 20s, 30s, and 40s well. So when you get to your 50s, 60s, and 70s, you've got maximum kingdom fruitfulness to offer. That's how this is supposed to work. And we want to be the kind of congregation that lifts up the value of the aging process. Culturally, we're not good at this. North American culture does not lift up the value of aging. Generally speaking, it's a denial process with aging, right? Just deny the fact that you're getting older. Hold it off as long as you can. You've lost a step. You're past your prime. Get all these lotions and creams and pound the treadmill and count the carbs and hold it off. God says, what? Embrace it. Because here's, the, here's what's supposed to be the normal process with aging. With age is supposed to come wisdom and maturity. That's normal process. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's plenty of abnormal on the journey. But just say, God's intent is that as we grow and develop, that we would be growing in wisdom and maturity with age. So we should be embracing. That's why the Proverbs talk about, right? 
Don't get hard on the bald guy and the gray guy. Embrace the wisdom that the bald and the gray have to offer. Amen. Nobody's amen and for the bald and the gray. I'm amen and for the bald and the gray folks. So if you've been kind of stewing around, well, what does God want to do with my life? I feel like I'm just kind of over the hill and I don't have much to offer and I'm late to the queue and all of this. I just want to encourage you. You've got more to offer now than ever. Finish strong. Flourish all the way to the finish. Bear fruit like Moses. Let's have the 135 chapters of kingdom ministry be your last section of your life. Wouldn't that be awesome? And we rejoice in the younger generation. We want to build into them. But I think we need to have a healthier, long-haul view. To expect our 20s and 30s to run everything and do everything, that's not how God sees the kingdom working. The 20s and 30s have a key role, and we want to embrace them and see their gifts deployed. But it has to be under the wisdom and leadership of those who are farther down the road. And think about as a nation, we're all messed up on this front. You know, some of the crisis of leadership is rooted in the pressing people and placing them in some positions of power and authority that their interior world has not been developed to handle. They don't have the character and the infrastructure in here to handle the positions of influence out there. And that's why there's an implode happening all across, professionally, in our political sphere, right, in the church world. This happens all over the place. And let's be the kind of folks who learn through this journey of Moses. Let's look, hey, Moses, he'd kind of given up on himself somewhere in his 50s, 60s, and 70s. And God said, well, you might have given up on yourself, but I didn't give up on you at age 80, lights this plant on fire and says, I'm going to ignite a fire in your heart and it's going to burn white hot and it doesn't need you for fuel. Because if it's dependent on Moses, the story's ending today in chapter 3. But because it doesn't depend on Moses, that's why any old Rubus Sanctus will do. It doesn't, he doesn't care what kind of Rubus Sanctus out there. I pick you, I'm going to ignite a fire in your heart and it's going to burn white hot, independent of you and me. So today... We're going to look at Moses' response to this fuelless fire conversation. God ignites this plan on fire, speaks to Moses. Moses, I've got something for you to do. Specifically, what did he have for him to do? Lead his people, the Israelites. Where are the Israelites right now? They've been in captivity in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. That's not their destiny. Their destiny is back to the promised land. So God says, hey, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people I've listened to their groanings. I'm concerned about their sufferings. I'm going to step in and do something about it. To which Moses and all of us say, amen, Lord, step in and do something about it. And then chapter 3, verse 10, God says, so here's my plan. So Moses, I pick you. You are going to go to Pharaoh and communicate the plan for Pharaoh to release the Israelites back to the promised land. Now we're going to look at Moses' fourfold response to God's plan. Number one, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So excuse number one for Moses is, Hey, who am I, Lord? I don't have all the answers to all the questions that are coming my way. Anybody felt like that? Anybody felt like God's calling you to do something, nudging you to do something, and you're running the tape out like Moses. You're imagining yourself in certain situations and circumstances. You're imagining the dialogue that's coming to you, and you don't feel like you've got what it takes to handle that. 
That's where Moses is at. Legit concern, right? And this is kind of an excuse he throws up to God. Say, hey, God, I don't have all the answers to handle what you're asking me to do here. I hear you clearly. Notice Moses doesn't say, I don't understand what you want me to do. Generally speaking, I can't say with God that I just need clarity on what he's asking me to do. I think God is usually pretty clear on what he wants me to do. My struggle is actually following through with what he wants me to do. And I go like Moses. We're going to see the humanity of Moses, who we lift up and say, Moses is such a spiritual giant, and he is in some measure, but he's also so earthy and human. That's why I love the scriptures. You can learn from him. Because who hasn't at some point in their walk with God say, God, I don't think I can do this. I don't have what it takes to do this. I hear what you want me to do. I just don't think I'm the, who am I? And I think the posture of who am I is kind of a first round draft pick with God. My observation is those who feel like they've got the most to offer God and are like the front row, like always trying to sign up for everything to do for God are not his highest draft picks. God's looking for those who feel most kind of inferior, those who are on the edges, who've been overlooked and forgotten at times. Why is God doing it that way? Because they have this built-in posture of Moses posture. Who am I, Lord? There's just no way you can get this done. If that's coming out of your mouth, I want to encourage you to say, there's a real good chance you're standing at your own personal burning bush. If internally you and God are having the dialogue, I don't, I don't know about this, Lord. Who am, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I can do this, Lord. Right there, that's a good indicator. Versus those who feel like they've kind of got it all figured out and know what they want to do and they've got the three-point outline and plan for how they're going to win the world for Jesus, that's probably not as much a personal burning bush moment. Probably have a little bit too much of us in that equation, a little too much of self in that, so God's going to refine some of that. So I think this is a good little window when you know you've been thrust into something God wants you to do, he's tapping, the Spirit's leading you to do something. If your internal reaction is like Moses and you're at excuse one, you're like, who am I, Lord? Here's God's response. Notice verse 12. God says to him, I will be with you. That's it. Which you, you notice all through the scriptures, this is a repeated refrain of God with those he calls to do something. Here's what he says to Moses. Moses, you're not going to have all the answers but you will have all of me. I think someone, I think God brought someone to church this morning to just hear that one sentence. You've been perhaps pounding the fist in prayer, asking God for all the answers, and the Lord's response is this. You may not get all the answers you're looking for, but you'll get all of me. And maturity is when that is enough. Say, Lord, if you're with me, that's enough. Notice he doesn't give Moses all the answer. All through this dialogue, by the way, God doesn't give him all the answers about how this whole thing is going to unfold. We'll get into that in future weeks. But right now, he's just saying, hey, I'll be with you. You'll have all of me, and that will be enough for you. And he gives him the title, and Moses is going back. Well, what about this, and what about that? Notice this is his second excuse. So basically, notice how Moses' posture is in the, God, suppose I do this. That's where Moses is at. And God's response is, when you do this. Have you noticed, God, like when you're sovereign, you don't have to shout. Sovereign, meaning you're in control of all things and always. God's got this whole thing in control. So Moses is in the, Lord, suppose I walk this out. And God's like, when you go and lead the Israelites and they worship beyond this mountain. That's where the, if you follow in the scriptures, that's where this dialogue goes. 
And I think that's a great pot. How many times in my relationship with the Lord I've done that? Lord, suppose I do this. And God's not like, when, Simpson? When you do this? He's not looking for, this isn't really a discussion point. Like God didn't come to Moses and say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. He, Moses doesn't get to vote God off the island on this one. He doesn't get together and say, you know what, Lord? Ah, not enough pros, cons, I'm out. No, that's not really how this is going to go. He's just, Moses, this is what you're going to do. How we're going to unfold this, I pick you. Fuel is fire, not dependent on your rubus sanctus. Let's go. So he says, hey, Moses, you're going to go to the Israelite leaders first, to his own people, and you're going to present the plan. Picture like the elders of the Israelite community. Pitch the plan to them first. Tell them how we're going to get the people out of Egypt. And here's Moses' response to that. Excuse number two, chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if, underline that in your Bibles, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? So excuse number two is, I'm sure none of us struggle with this, but just imagine if we might struggle with this, is what if this and what if that and what if this? What if, what if, what if, what if? What if that contract doesn't get signed? What if that person changes their mind? What if, what if this situation goes from bad to worse? What if I step out here and look like a fool? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they don't support me? What if I step into this and it doesn't go exactly like I want it to go? What if, what if, what if? That's the vocabulary of those who are bound in what the scripture calls worry. The Greek word for worry is merimnaho. Do you know what it means? It means to be choked with concern. To be strangled with anxiety. When we're living in the cycle of what if, we're kind of in the cycle of worry, merimnaho, to be choked with concern. Here's Moses. He's projecting out a bunch of scenarios that he has no idea are ever going to occur. And that's what worry does to us. Worry gets us to live in such a way to project out what might occur. And so you live in this kind of uh, future tense scenarios. And that keeps you from ever embracing the joy of the present moment. You can't enjoy now if you're so preoccupied with what might be out there. That's where Moses at. He's running the tape out and go, Lord, if I step, what if this and what if? He can't just embrace right now. Like, hey, God's just looking at him right now, Moses. I just need you to go to the Israelite leaders and have this dialogue. And Moses, like, what if, what if, what if? It's so like us. How many times I do this? And notice now, Jesus had a response to this what if scenario. Matthew 6, I think I put it in your notes. Here's a Jesus response to our. What if propensities? In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he says. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. There's Jesus' response. Jesus basically says, why don't you just be done with worry, Simpson? Jesus actually believes you can come to the place in life where Merim Naho does not have a stranglehold on your heart. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Wouldn't it be great to live without being choked with anxiety and concern all the time? But Jesus believes it's possible in his, in his kingdom, under his lordship. To which we hear Jesus' words, and we say, well, but Jesus, what if, what if no one's worrying about tomorrow? Right? We hear Jesus, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. And a worrier will say, 
What if no one's worrying about tomorrow? What are we going to do with that? So Moses' first excuse is, who am I to do this, Lord? God's response is, I'll be with you. Moses' second excuse is, well, what if I do step into this? And what if I do go to the leaders? And what if I do have the conversation? And what if they don't believe me? And what if they don't listen to me? And God's response now, follow God's response. God's so patient with us as he is with Moses here. Verse 2 and following. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. So a staff would be, just think of it, kind of an oversized cane. Moses said, the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. I love that. I would too. Anybody love just hanging out with snakes? I mean, geez, he didn't think that. God just saying, hey, throw your staff on the ground. Turns into a snake. Ah, out. And then look what the Lord tells him. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Are you kidding me? Now, I'm not a snake handler, but some of you are a lot more experienced in this. What's the one part of the snake you're not supposed to grab? The tail, because the head can come around and give you a good snap, right? You don't grab the tail. God's like, hey, grab the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff. Super relieved at that point, turns back into his wooden stick. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. Cloak would be like his coat. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. So it had this skin disease all over it. It was covered with this skin disease. Verse 7, now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second one. Notice may, (laughs) may believe the second one. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So what's God doing with Moses here? I think he's giving him some reassurance. Aren't you grateful God's like this? He's empathizing a bit with Moses' struggle. Again, he's not deterred, by the way, of Moses' excuses. We're going to see through this whole story. Moses got four excuses. God's not deterred by any of the excuses, and we're here talking about him because Moses does end up executing the plan just as God wanted, lest you think who's going to get the final word. But God will work with us in the process. And he was like, hey, Moses, staff, hand, water, stuff right here in front of you. I don't need you to look for extra, I don't need you to go to extracurricular activities to get done what I need you to get done. This is a lesson from the Lord in role clarification. He's clarifying Moses' role. Moses, here's your role. Go to Pharaoh, go to the Israelite leaders, have the conversation. That's your role. Moses, my role is to convince all the other people to go along with the plan. Moses, you don't have to convince anybody. Moses, I got this. Ready, set, go. You go to the leaders. You go to Pharaoh. You speak about the plan. I will step in, and I'll get them to cooperate with the plan. Do you see role clarification? I know for me, I can get wound up in Merim Naho when I get all mixed up about my role. It's exhausting to try to play God when you're not God. 
You try to play God in your family front. You try to play God in your career front. You try to play God in ministry front, and you're not God. Have you noticed how exhausting it is to live that way? A much better place is to surrender and let God be God. Let the I am be the great I am. Let the one who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob step in and carry out what he wants to carry out. You play your role, let God play his role. It's a much more freeing way to live. It's just hard to do. I get all mixed up about my role. And it's easy for Moses here to get a little confused about how important his part is. He's probably thinking he's got to convince the leaders and convince Pharaoh. And God says, throw your staff down, check out your hand inside your cloak, pour the water out. All of that is to say, hey, we got our role straight here. I'll do the convincing. I'll move on the hearts. You just carry out what you're supposed to carry out. You be the mouthpiece. This is where God is giving Moses, again, the dignity of responsibility. Remember that discussion from last week? It's a wonderful invitation from God. God could do all of this without Moses, but he chooses to give Moses the dignity of responsibility, to be involved in what God's going to do in extracting his people out of slavery in Egypt. What an amazing thought. All the ways God comes to us and says, I got a bunch of stuff I want to get done in this world. And the primary way God gets stuff done in this world is through his people. Now, we can argue the wisdom of that plan all we want, but that's God's plan. He's like, I'm going to choose to use average, ordinary people, and I'm going to ignite a fuelless fire in their heart, and I'm going to give them the dignity of responsibility to engage in what I want to get done in this world. And here's where Moses is at. We're going to have, all, we're going to have excuse one. I don't feel like, Lord, I don't have all the answers. And we're going to have an excuse to, well, Lord, what if I say yes to this? And, and what if that doesn't go well? What if it gets worse? What if they don't listen to me? God's like, hey, relax, keep your role straight. But you think, all right, we might be getting somewhere. Moses, he's not done. He's got another excuse. Excuse number three, verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Some translations you're reading say he's stuttering. They believe Moses had a significant stuttering problem. So Moses is like, Lord, there's a lot more folks in the Israelite community who can speak much more fluently and eloquently than I can, so I'm out. Kind of like, you picked the wrong guy again. See, Moses, like, hey, so he goes from, I don't have all the answers, what if I actually do this to, I'm not, I put in your notes, I'm not blank enough to do this. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not what enough to do this. Anybody been there? I'm not blank enough to do this, Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, here's how the Apostle Paul lived out this experience when you get to those places. Because, of course, in a life with God, He's going to lead us into this space of not being enough. To try to resist getting here, you're going to try to resist God, and that's never going to work well. He's going to lead us into this space. Here's what Paul found, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Here's the key. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see that? So here's what Paul discovered that Moses is discovering here. The very places we say we're not enough is the space where God steps in and says, I'll be enough. 
I'm going to exalt the glory and power of my name in that gap of what you would call weakness, insufficiency. I don't have what it takes. I'm not talented enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not whatever enough. And God says, that's exactly why I picked you. Those who feel like they are enough to get done what God wants to get done are most likely not standing at a fuelless fire burning bush. Generally speaking, you know you're looking into a fuelless fire and a nudge from God to do something when your internal reaction is, I I don't think I can do this, Lord. Exactly. Because then you're going to walk away from the scenario and you're going to sing what the Apostle Paul said, in my places of weakness, you show yourself strong. And God gets glory in that. He loves taking the weak things, the overlooked things, the forgotten things, the 80-year-old Moses and sheep herding obscurity, long since given up on himself. He loves picking those folks, drafting them into his story. So they cry out, I can't do this, Lord. And the Lord said, yeah, I know exactly you can't do this, but you and me together, we'll get this done. Over and over in Scripture, we'll see this principle. God and anybody is a majority. That's always in Scripture. God plus anybody, God plus Moses is a majority. Moses is looking at it going, several hundred thousand Israelites are not going to be on this plan. Pharaoh and his crew are not going to be about this plan. And God's like, yeah, but who is about this plan? Yahweh, the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. Throw your staff down, pour out that water, stick your hand in your cloak. Are we clear on your role here? God and anybody is a majority. Let's go. Moses like, I can't speak very well. Seriously? He just turned a staff into a snake. You just put water and blood, leprous hand, clean hand. He just did all that. And Moses says, I, I can't talk very well. God's so patient with us. Verse 11, the Lord says to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? (laughs) Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Hallelujah for that, huh? The Lord's like, hey, Moses, who shaped the tongue? Who created you this way? It's like God saying, hey, memo, Moses, I'm aware of your stuttering issue. Note, Moses, I'm fully, I picked you knowing all this about you. Shocker. But sometimes we play this game with the Lord. We're like, Lord, do you know this about me? Do you know, like, how hard this will be? Do you know how insufficient I feel here? How inadequate I feel here? How insecure I feel here? Do you know all these scenarios? Lord, do you see all that? And the Lord's like, yeah, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. I see it all, and I pick you. Remember, Moses, role clarification. It's not about your rubus sanctus. Any old rubus sanctus will do. It's about the fuelless fire. Let's go. The fuelless fire, he'll come through. He'll help you speak. You'll get the words out when you need to get them out. Let's go. And you think finally Moses is going to cross the threshold and say, you're right, Lord, you win in this. Well, he's got one more. I call it like the four-layered cake of excuse for Moses. He's got four layers to his cake. Fourth layer is this one. Verse 13, Moses says to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Oh, hallelujah. I love the Bible. How many times in a walk with God are you going to be there? If you're not there, just keep living with him. You'll be right there. 
That's a great indicator you're standing at your own personal burning bush. When you stand there and stare into that fuelless fire and you have this dialogue back and forth with God and he burns away excuse one and he burns away excuse two and he burns away excuse three and the best you got to offer is this. I'm done. Get someone else, Lord. I can't do it. Find anybody else, Lord. Oh, man, you know you're at a perfect place to step out and embrace the dignity of responsibility with God when you get to that place in the dialogue. Lord, find some, anybody else to do this. Some of you are right there, and you've been there. Perhaps at excuse one, two, or three, but probably camped out a fair amount on four, where you're looking for any reason and any rationale to pass the dignity of responsibility to anyone who will take it but you. And you know deep down in your heart of hearts, God's ignited something way down here. It's a fuelless fire, and it's burning white hot, and as much as you try to resign, this is like his letter of resignation, to which the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth slides back across his desk and says, I don't accept it. Your resignation letter not accepted. Because it's not about you, Moses. Back to, you don't get to vote on this one. This isn't a Moses vote, no. When you go, when you bring the people out, when the story unfolds, because when you're sovereign, you don't have to shout. He just works with Moses and his humanity. And so I want, I want to leave us here in this space. And the worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us through a song here. And I think this song, I want you to think of the song as um, kind of an anthem for our four-layer excuse cake. It's, it's, it's the vocabulary of what, what do you do when you're just kind of wrestling through, you're getting clarity on a nudging from God, or it could be as bold and stark as a, a fuelless fire moment. And you just know in your heart of hearts, God's leading you, prompting you to step out. And join him in the dignity of responsibility and participate with him in what he wants done in this world. You know that, but there's the, I don't have all the answers, Lord. What if, what if, what if? I'm not smart enough, strong enough, spiritual enough, experienced enough. Just find someone else, Lord. Just find someone else to do that. And if you're right there, I think this song that the team's going to teach us today, and we're going to sing in the weeks ahead, I think this becomes a bit of a little anthem for us to sing and at the end of this song I'm going to lead us in a prayer and my prayer for this time is that we were able to by the help of his spirit we can move from excuses to surrender today that we just move along that spectrum that we just maybe lay some things down maybe through this song you're just going to lay some of those things down and by the end we're able to say you know what Lord I'm a little farther down the path of surrender and what he's ultimately looking for is obedience, just to do what he's asked us to do. Let's pray together. Lord, I just think there's some who maybe come through a week or a month or a year where that chorus Maybe a commentary on just feeling so weak. The 
feeling at the end of themselves, feeling like can't figure out how they're going to get through whatever it is they're going through, can't figure out how to say yes to what they know deep down you're calling them to say yes to. And we just unite our hearts now. We just, we stand on what Psalm 73 says that though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Lord, would you come into that space right now, into those not enough places where we feel we don't have what it takes to choose surrender right now. Would you meet us right there by the power of your spirit in our place of weakness, turn it into a place of strength right now in Jesus' name. Ignite a fire in our hearts that doesn't need us for fuel, burning white hot. Give us vision and clarity. Give us a boldness and a courage, a a spirit-filled courage to say yes, even when we don't have all the questions answered, we have all of you. And help us be the kind of people that conclude that is enough you are with us. So help us choose surrender right now. So open hearts and open hands say, yes, Lord. Wherever the prompting of the step of obedience is, just right now agree and say, yes, Lord. And then give us the eye of faith to see how you join us in that space and demonstrate you are enough. In Jesus' name.